Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. There are so many ways to meet people. Through friends, at a party or a concert, maybe at the gym or some social group activity. We're on the apps. There are so many apps. And some meet through prison pen pal programs. Now, it's important to say that not everybody who writes to people in prison does so with the interest or expectation of falling in love, getting married, and having kids with someone who's incarcerated. That's what Sigrid Wade would tell you, but that's what happened. I always say that, like, if you just would spend some time with them, then you would see some of the things that I see. And the man it happened with is Alan Wade, who at the time was on death row in Florida for murdering an elderly couple. You'll hear more about that later and why, late last year, the state commuted a sentence to life without the possibility of parole, and you'll meet Sigrid in a little bit. But first, Megan Comfort. She literally wrote the book on women and relationships with incarcerated men. She's also a senior research sociologist at the Research Triangle Institute's Transformative Research Unit for Equity. And she's an affiliated faculty in the Division of Prevention Science at the University of California, San Francisco. According to Megan, men often become much more emotionally available when the hustle and bustle of daily life can settle down. And I had a lot of women talk to me about the emotional availability of men who were in prison in the sense that they became more in touch with their own emotions and could kind of realize like they've sought that emotional connection. They had time to sit. People talked a lot about letter writing and, you know, these long emotional letters that men would write to them. Um, they sort of reflected on a lot of things they hadn't thought about before. And that the conversations in the visiting room, when people were able to visit, could also be very emotionally in tune. Even with more emotional availability, that's not to say these relationships are easy. The couples have to get a bit creative. I would say a common theme across my work when I've spoken with people, um, as I say, I've, I've also spoken with men who are incarcerated about their family relationships, is the creativity and, and expansive thinking and, and finding different ways of doing things. So, you know, in some families, there's a picture of someone on the diner table, and that's a way of invoking that person in every meal. Uh, there are ways of, you know, structuring the day around a phone call or we're going to do these things. You know, people could watch a movie at the same time. If people, the people who are inside of a prison know what movie is being shown on Friday night, they can tell their loved ones and their loved ones can watch the same movie at the same time. So there are lots of ways of creating closeness and connection that uh, people are, as you say, incredibly inventive around. And maybe those are where the surprises come in. Now, you may be thinking to yourself that those people who are incarcerated, especially those who are in prison for something like murder, well, they don't deserve to find love. That's something I talk with both Sigrid and Alan about later in the show, but I wanted to know what Megan thought about that. People who harm other people have almost always been harmed themselves. If we are a society that really believes in healing people, and you know, most people do come home from prison, even people who are serving life sentences, 
if we want people to come home whole and healed, then we need them to have access to everything they need for that, including love. I asked for one final word on all this from Megan. I mean, I think I would emphasize how both the people who are in prison and the people who love them are us, right? <laughs> like when I started doing this work, I started seeing people out and about in my life, you know, who I had also seen at the prison. So, you know, the person who's a bank teller, the person who's the, you know, community center receptionist, the person who's your colleague, you know, these are all potentially people who have a loved one who's incarcerated. That was sociologist and researcher Megan Comfort. We'll have a link to her work at ctpublic.org slash audacious. It was July 8th, 2005, in Jacksonville, Florida. Shortly after 10 p.m., Alan Wade and one of his three co-conspirators, Bruce Nixon, knocked on the door of Reggie and Carol Sumner. They asked if they could use their phone. Both Reggie and Carol were 61 years old. Reggie was severely diabetic and used a wheelchair, and Carol was struggling with liver cancer. As soon as the couple let the two men in, Alan ripped the landline out of the wall. Bruce bound them with duct tape, and they demanded the couple's bank and credit cards. Two other accomplices, Tiffany Cole and Michael James Jackson, were waiting in a vehicle outside. They locked Reggie and Carol in the trunk of their own Lincoln town car, and all of them drove to a hole that the foursome had dug two days earlier in preparation for the crime. It was there that they buried Reggie and Carol alive. In the trial three years later, Wade's defense argued that he had experienced trauma as a child. A babysitter sexually abused him. He was abandoned by his father. He began drinking and using drugs at 12 years old. And at 15, his mother kicked him out of the house. Still, this crime wasn't some spur-of-the-moment trigger response. It was methodically planned for at least five days leading up to the event. The jury sentenced Alan Lindell Wade to death in 2008. But in 2016, the Florida Supreme Court decided that if a capital sentencing jury chose the death penalty, then they must vote for it unanimously. And that's why Alan's sentencing had to be retried. In the initial 2008 trial, jurors voted 11 to 1 in favor of the death penalty. So last year, he had a resentencing trial. Jurors decided Alan would go from death row to life without the possibility of parole. Now, let's meet Sigrid. She's Alan's wife and the mother of their three-year-old child. And she's also the co-founder of a prison pen pal program called Wire of Hope. Back in 2000, when she was living in France, she started writing to prisoners on death row in America to express her solidarity. In 2014, she connected with Alan. They've been together for nine years now, and they're coming up on their seventh wedding anniversary. I asked her how it felt back in the beginning, getting to know Alan. We just instantly um, clicked, I would say. We just got along really well, and I think it was a time of my in my life where I was extremely happy. I was living like my best life, I always say. But at the same time, I didn't have my uh, close friends around. So I think he kind of stood up for that. He was uh, confident very quickly. Yeah. How long were you writing 
to each other before you met in real life? And what was it like the first time you met? We were writing for eight or nine months. I think nine months before I visited the first time. It was like meeting a stranger, but who knows absolutely everything about you. Yeah, it was interesting. Actually, the first visit, most of the time, we just stared at each other, looked at each other in the eyes for like hours. How much time do you get together, by the way, when you visit? We got six hours. So um, I think there's a science say that if you stare at someone's eyes for like three minutes, then you feel a connection or something like that. So we did it for hours. So I always joke that that's why we're still (laughs) connected now. But yeah, it was definitely strange and I was shy and I didn't like my English, uh, my accent when I was speaking English. So I was shy. He was laughing because I didn't dare to talk. It, it was awkward, but it was sweet. At what point did you realize this is someone I want to spend the rest of my life with? I think it was pretty quick at the end of those visits. I knew that if I decided to be in a relationship with him, it was going to be a long-term commitment. I didn't know about forever, but um, definitely a long time because it's it's too serious to play with it. So um, I would say, yeah, at, at the end of those, we had like seven visits. So seven times six hours, basically, that's all we had. And then I knew I wanted to be with him. I was just worried because I can do, I told him, I can do prison, I can do long distance, and maybe I can do death row, but all three together, <laughs> it's a lot. So it was it was scary. How long was it between your first correspondence with him and you moving from France to Florida? <laughs> three years by the time I got my visa. But we made the decision about two years when we got married. It's one thing for your friends and family to know that you correspond with people on death row in the United States. And it's another thing to tell them I'm moving from France to Florida to marry a person on death row. So what kind of reactions did you get from your friends and family when you told them this? My family, they knew I was writing to people on death row, but they did not take it well that I was in a relationship with one. Um, How can I say it nicely? Um, They just kind of, they they all turned their back on me, if I can can say it like this. Um, First, visiting and being with him because I was with him for two years before we got married was accepted ish. <laughs> but um, once I, I sent like the, um, the wedding announcement, um, I didn't get a response from most people. And um, some of them just deleted me from their um, Facebook friends. There was not even conversations really about it, except for my really close family. Like my mom was not thrilled about it, but she had met him before. So she understands what I see. She sees what I see in him. But I really only have like my very close family, my mom, my sister. That's it. Whether in 
letters or in-person visits, how much did you talk about the murders that he was a part of? We never talked about the crime. But you knew because you could look him up. And not before writing him, though. I just looked at the charges, but it doesn't tell you, you know, it says murder, but I mean, it doesn't tell you the whole story. And uh, the whole story was worse. So when I read, I, I knew that it wasn't him. It was not the person that I knew. So either in my mind, there was like two options. Either it was not um, guilty of exactly what they were saying, or it was a completely different person now. And uh, when we met, uh, we didn't talk about the crime. At first, we just didn't talk about it at all. We had so much more to talk about. And then because I knew that he couldn't talk about it because he still had, you know, some legal actions and and stuff like that. So I knew myself not to ask. So I waited until we got married. And then it's whatever he tells me is protected to ask my all my questions because I he made in windows, you know, like I could never hurt a woman or that kind of things. And there was a, a woman in the victim of the crime. So I was like, well, he's telling me something there and that kind of things. But I only asked my questions really after we got married. Were there any questions you asked him and the answer didn't sit right or didn't match him or still kind of bothered you? Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole thing bothers me, obviously. But there was a time when I think it could have changed the course of the events and it didn't. He told me that he thought about it. He discussed it with one of the co defendants, but they didn't dare to do anything. And to me, I was like, but how, like you could have, but then I think it's not fair because I'm not in his shoes at that time, you know, so I can't really know. Uh, but of course, right now he regrets it. And he, the person he is today would definitely change the events of that night. I feel like the kernel of the dissonance about why when people hear about someone on death row getting married to someone, the, your situation, basically. I think maybe the kernel of discomfort, one of the kernels of discomfort is, and I'm going to talk to him about this too, it's like people feel you don't deserve any joy after the literal torture that he played a part in putting these people through at the end of their lives, these very vulnerable people and their families and the ripple effect of something like that. Like that people feel like he doesn't deserve to be loved. He doesn't deserve to be married. He doesn't deserve to have a child, which you now have together. He doesn't deserve it. Like, how is this possible? When you hear that, what, what comes to mind? Yes, no one thinks he deserves it, but no one knows him. And I always say that, like, if you just would spend some time with him, then you would see some of the things that I see. Um, but I also I also understand that people think that. The truth is that the sentence, um, so at the time, the sentence was death and not infinite torture in the middle. And they already have that. So... Yes, they're still, they're still human beings, and yes, they still have rights, and they have the right to get married. 
with Sigrid Wade. She's married to Alan Wade, who's currently serving life without the possibility of parole in Florida. When we get back, what does Sigrid hope for, for her and her family? I wish my husband would come home someday. I know it would upset a lot of people, but he was only 18. He's a different person. I really think he deserves a second chance. Then meet Alan. I wrote her back and then I started catching feelings and I just kept thinking about her constantly. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Today we're hearing the story of a woman who fell in love with and married a man on death row. They've been together for nine years, and they have a child together. Back in 2014, Sigrid Wade, originally from France, had been writing for a long time to people in the United States who'd been sentenced to the death penalty. She feels strongly against the punishment, so she wanted to connect and show solidarity. That was how she fell in love with Alan Wade, who just last year had a sentence commuted to life without the possibility of parole. You'll meet him in a little bit, but let's get back to my conversation with Sigrid. You had a child with him and you know that you know if you don't someday tell this kid the story the kid can google it so you know that there's going to come a time to have this conversation with your child about where alan is and why was there any hesitation about having a child uh, with alan because of that dynamic and the fact that alan wouldn't be able to be in the child's life in the way that maybe you wished he would I'd, i'd like to hear more about that decision to have a child with him Alan always loved kids, and he always wanted to have kids, uh, but obviously it's out of the questions because of where he is. But on my side, it's the opposite. I never wanted kids, but I realized that, you know, talking with him and I was getting frustrated that I could not have a child with him. Um, So the best we could do is raise a child together. And of course, I was... I was like, I really want to raise a child with him. I, I want a kid with him. But at the same time, like, obviously, this is like the not the best situation. But unfortunately, I had to make my decision pretty quickly because, you know, I'm a woman. I was getting closer to my 40s and 
I had some infertility issues, so I I knew I had to decide and fast. So I would say we had a child earlier than what I would initially want, but um, so it was a decision that I decided I had to decide I can raise a child basically by myself. I can do with the prison, all those things. It was, I know basically I'm going to be a single mom. So I, I had to decide that I could do that. And I thought I could do it. We never intended to lie to him or anything about uh, where Alan is and what the situation. So we always plan of telling him the truth, like whatever he asks. Alan and I are both really straightforward. We're very honest. I love this about Alan, but just a heads up, he's brutally honest. Good. My show is called Audacious. That's what I'm hoping for. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, we will, we can't even lie if we want to try. So, <laughs> Bear with me. As you were speaking, I was thinking, huh, I wonder if there's a part of you that sees your son as a part of Alan that is free. You're nodding. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that when you say if there's a part of him, because I, I often think of that. I was like, I feel like him raising a child that is outside is definitely, yeah, I don't know how to explain, but son is going to be able to grow the way that Anne would have wanted to and to do the things that maybe Anne would want to and to have like a full life outside Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully no prison for my kid <laughs> that Alan can't have. So it's definitely living through him a little bit. Now, one thing to be perfectly clear about is when you were writing to him, he was on death row. When you saw him for the first time, he was on death row. When you got married, he was on death row. When you gave birth to your child, he was on death row. And last year, because of this resentencing trial due to a Supreme Court decision about not having a unanimous decision about the death penalty, he's now been sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. What impact did this have on you emotionally? Huge relief. It's a huge relief because uh, we were getting really close to the end of his appeals. So I was getting really anxious he used to joke about that sometimes, but it wasn't funny to me because when we first got together about deciding to be together, actually, uh, one day he told me, you know, you can be with me. It's going to be like five, six years. And then you can have, you still, <laughs> you can still have another life. And, uh, but now he wouldn't, he wouldn't say that anymore. I don't think so, <laughs> but he was not afraid. Um, but now, I know I'm not really answering your question because I'm answering kind of for him, but now he has a will to live that he didn't have before. And for me, it's kind of the the opposite. Like I I was terrified by death and he calmed me about it in a way. Like I'm not as scared as I used to be. Um, but it was a huge relief that he was not sentenced to death anymore. I mean, obviously no one wants to go through that. And I don't think I could overcome witnessing that or be a victim of that because I would become a victim and my son would be too. So, yeah. 
So now you've got a future that is as certain or uncertain as anybody else's, right? Uh, because he has been spared the death penalty. What are your hopes for the rest of your life, for you and for your family? It's a tough question because I'm married to him. I have my son. Like, what else could I want? I mean, I'm I'm pretty happy with what I have. I wish my husband would come home someday. I know it would upset a lot of people, but he was only 18. He's a different person. I really think he deserves a second chance. And there's still hope that laws keep changing and that maybe one day it'll get a, a release date. Who knows? Because when I married him, like you said, I mean, I had no clue that one day it could be off death row. So who knows? Maybe one day he'll be out. If that day came when he was released from prison and into your arms, besides the obvious, what what would you want to do? When I think about that, I'm a little scared because we would have to learn to live together when we both have lived alone for a very long time. On this side right now, being in a dorm is adjusting to having to be social again. Uh, after 17, 16 years of isolation, I think. But for me, when he would come home, I, w I would really not be used to be around people. So, and I'm a very independent person, which is why it's working. So I'm thinking more about this. I am more anxious about how we would make it work. And because he feels, well, he tells me he would always be after me, around me. Like he wants to, of, of course, you know, after all that time. And me, I'm like, well, wait a minute, because I need my, my space. So we, we mostly talk about that when we talk about him coming home, how we would make it work. One thing that I think about uh, when I think about someone becoming a pen pal, especially with someone on death row, is like to me to be on death row, trustworthy is not the first word that comes to mind or, or even life without parole. If you've been, if you truly did the crime, like trust is like the lowest thing on the list that I would imagine you were capable of. And so when I think about somebody who does begin contacting someone in prison who has been convicted and is guilty and like admits guilt and is accountable for a, a crime that is especially violent, how do you know that you can trust? And I guess like, I don't know if you have the answer to this, but how how do you trust somebody who's done something in which trust was weaponized, you know? I completely trust him, but it's possible one day I found out and I was wrong. I was wrong to trust him. You know, maybe I actually had a nightmare two years ago about us breaking up just before coming on your show. <laughs> but even so we were breaking up because he was having someone something with someone else and um he told me he wants to be with that other person and i was like but we have that show we have to go so now we have to we have to talk about breaking up but with love and <laughs> stuff like that <laughs> and so we're still respecting and loving each other and so that's what we were doing i woke up but <laughs> but it means to me it means that i really trust that Things could not be 
ugly or behind my back with him. Like I really feel like I would always be be told uh, what time it is. In a way, I can't see him stop loving me. <laughs> so I don't. I don't know. I mean, of course it can happen, but I just, I just don't see it happening. I don't know how to explain. I I trust him with everything for sure, and I could be wrong. Like I won't know until he proves me that I'm wrong. Yeah, and I guess maybe that's why committing to somebody feels so big because you never really know until you know. And that's that's the risk and it's a it's a price you pay and yes. That's the deal. But that's what we all do with marriage. When we get married, that's what we do. I'm going to trust you and you trust the other person not to hurt you. I know that you talk every day on the phone, but if there's something you'd like to say to him in the context of being at the end of a public radio interview, what would you want to say to Alan? I don't think I can say anything that he doesn't already know, <laughs> but I mean, I'm still here like a hundred percent. I love him through thick and thin. I'm not going anywhere. Sigrid Wade. Thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you. As you heard earlier, Sigrid's husband, Alan Wade, has been in prison for 18 years, convicted in the kidnapping, robbery, and first-degree murder of Reggie and Carol Sumner, an elderly couple who lived in southern Georgia. Alan was sentenced to death in 2008, and last year he was resentenced to life without parole. Here's some audio from his time on the stand in that resentencing trial. Nothing I say here today is meant to justify, excuse, or defend my cowardly crimes. Reggie and Carol, if there's a window or a connection to the afterlife or some sort of cosmic consciousness, and I know you can see Tremendous regret and shame in my heart. Every day I'm tormented by my cruel and careless actions against you. I should have helped instead of hurted you. I'm forever sorry for my senseless, unprovoked, undeserved actions against you. This is the most passionate regret and the biggest mistake of my life. I connected with Alan Wade about two months ago for his first media interview ever. Due to the restrictions around calls from a prison, you'll hear his voice through a speakerphone. I asked him about the first time he ever got a letter from Sigrid. seemed really interesting and I wasn't necessarily looking for interesting people because I was still kind of a weasel. So I wrote her back and yeah, she just seemed super cool and I started talking to her more and then I started catching feelings, which neither one of us wanted to do. And I tried to ghost her for a while and I just kept thinking about her constantly. Wait, wait, why did you try to ghost her if you couldn't stop thinking about her? She didn't want to be in a relationship. I didn't want to be in a relationship. 
and the only person I could think about was her. So I had to stop writing because I didn't want to be that guy in death row. I used to tell other guys who were in relationships that I would never be that guy who falls in love and get into a relationship while I'm in prison. And now, here I am. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's hard to avoid whenever it hits you. Yeah, regardless of where you are. Um, will you tell me about your wedding day? Oh, my gosh. It was awesome. She brought her mom and her best friend from France. I had my brother, my niece, uh, my sister, and my mom, and my stepdad there. And it was just beautiful. We both basically said the same things in our wedding vows. And it was just, uh, <laughs> it was super loaded with intense emotions. And it was a special day. And flash forward a couple of years, and you are a father right now to a three-year-old child. Um, what's the best part of being a parent for you right now? Knowing that we can create a good person together, it's intoxicating to think about the potential of a, a human life. I never really looked at humani- or humans as a, a source of potential goodness. And with him, I mean, we both want to do good and create good. I mean, me, I was a little late to the party, but I got there eventually. And now we have somebody who we can, you know, instill our values in. And I think it's special that we can give him everything that nobody gave to us when we were young and kind of help him and prepare him for life and give him the tools to succeed and do whatever he wants to. It's an amazing and unique experience to be alive, and I think he'll enjoy it. So do you get to hang out with him? Yeah, he comes to visit. He used to come visit every weekend, but now that I've got moved further away from where they live, he might come once a month or once every other month, and it's kind of disappointing right now, but I understand completely. It's it's a hard trip for, for them. Is there a part of you that feels like I was going to say that feels like a part of you is free because he's out there. I don't look at him as any kind of extension of myself. I, that's not, has nothing to do with why he's here. I mean, he's his own person and I'm just going to be here to be his best advocate and his best friend, whatever he needs me to be, that's what I'm going to be. But he has his own life, and I'm going to try to just help him have the best life he can. He's three years old now. When those conversations get started about why you are where you are, um, how much have you talked about that? Do you know what you're going to say? It depends on how old he is when he starts asking. I mean, I really don't want to lie to him ever. But we've already told him about Santa Claus and stuff like that. So I don't know <laughs> at what point we're going to start telling the truth. We have had this conversation. We're going to play it by ear, see how comprehensive he is to things and how sensitive he is. Yeah, there's just a lot of factors you have to take into consideration. Yeah, and it's a bigger conversation, too. Like, you know, someday he'll really be old enough to understand. He'll be old enough to Google. <laughs> right. And... uh 
and read some really difficult stuff. And, you know, a lot of the rest of the world, you know, we've seen the the court transcripts and, and heard what everybody's had to say and heard about your contrition and your your thoughts on how it all happened and where you are now and who you are now. And there's so many different viewpoints to this that are painful and also, you know, evidence I, of I, a... We don't have enough time to explain how horrible and worthless of a human I was to commit those crimes. I, I don't deny it at all. So I'm the best person to show him what not to do to get in a similar situation. Because I could have avoided that situation if I had better guidance. I'm not blaming anybody else for the things that I did. But I think that if I would have had more more influential figures in my life, then I wouldn't have been in that spot. I'm not blaming anybody else. I did what I did, and I, I can't ensure that he won't end up in a similar situation, but I'm going to do everything I can to make sure he does. That was Alan Wade. He's in prison for life without the possibility of parole. He's married to Sigrid Wade, who began writing to him as a prison pen pal. They now have a three-year-old child. After the break. I have no problem if somebody says that I don't deserve love or I don't deserve to live. Because if somebody did the things that I did to my family, I would want them to die too. But I'm alive and I'm just going to make the best of it as long as I'm alive. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. When Alan Wade was sentenced to death for the 2005 kidnapping, robbery, and first-degree murder of Reggie and Carol Sumner, an elderly couple, it's fair to say that he didn't expect love or parenthood to ever be a part of his life. The damage he'd done to his victims and their families and to himself and the people in his world didn't seem to leave room for redemption. Affection. Love. But soon, it'll be the ninth anniversary of the day he first got a letter from his wife, Sigrid. And now they've got a three-year-old son. He joined me from a Florida prison, and you'll hear his voice through a speakerphone. One thing that I've been thinking about, I was raised by a prosecutor. My stepfather was a, a senior assistant state's attorney, and I think that formed me in ways that I like and in ways I don't like. And um, oh, yeah, I was about to say, I'm sorry to hear that. I know. <laughs> It's complicated, that's for sure. And so there's a wiring in me. Uh, I think that's partly due to my experience with him and partly due to the society I'm in and who knows what else. But there's a part of me that uh, I think a lot of people might feel too, which is, you know, you did something so terrible that you don't deserve love. You don't deserve a family. You don't deserve to be joyful uh, this isn't fair. How do you respond to that? I'm not going to tell anybody how to feel. So I have no problem if somebody says that I don't deserve love or I don't deserve to live. I mean, I understand that because if somebody did the things that I did to my family, I would want them to die too. So I can't sit here and be a hypocrite and say that <laughs> I, don't, I think I deserve to live or it's a, it's a complex situation, but I'm alive and I'm just going to make the best of it as long as I'm alive. 
Was there a point where you had to wrestle with that yourself? Like, do I deserve yeah. this? I got to death row when I was 20, and I couldn't look in the mirror until I was about 25, 26, and feel a little bit confident or comfortable with myself. So it was a little rebirth period for me. I had to, I had to get in touch with myself and find reasons to live and find some hope. I think there are people who haven't really ever done anything wrong who also don't feel like they are worthy of love. Like this is, this runs deep in a lot of people and it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing to come to terms with. Do you still, or do you ever, was there like a barrier you crossed when you were like, you know what? No, I do deserve this. I'm not sure if it was a barrier, but there's something called a Socratic exercise where you ask yourself a hundred questions. You don't have to answer them. You just ask yourself a hundred questions and you notice a theme will occur. And my theme was love. I kept asking myself, why am I not love? Why do I constantly think about love? Why do I always run away people who love me? It was just, love was the fulcrum of my agony, my you know motivation in life. Everything was about love. So I had to figure out what love meant to me and what I wanted love to look like. And it, it just fell into my lap in the form of my wife. I had to try because it was everything I wanted. She was just perfect, and I couldn't couldn't turn my back on it as much as I wanted to. When your sentencing was changed from the death penalty to life without the possibility of parole, how did that affect how you saw your marriage? Because that was just a year ago. It, it changed in, I was always trying to rush things and I was trying to do as much as I could. So I guess I've got a little lazier because I feel like I've got time now, which is sad. But yeah, I'm kind of just enjoying life. I guess I'm on a, I'm, I'm adjusting to life around other people again. You know, I used to be around a lot of people, but I was also a terrible person. Now I don't feel like I'm a terrible person and I'm around a lot of people again. So it's a it's a different uh, situation. All my interactions are much different than they were when I was younger. Like people actually want to be around me now. And it's, it's hard to adjust. What do you make of this life that you've had, the difficulties and the joy that you're feeling now? Like, do you do you assign meaning to it personally? Or is it like... Is it just this is the chaos of a human existence? The meaning isn't for me to uh, to place. I, I'm not going to say that I have a meaning or a purpose. That'll be evident after I'm gone, if there's anything to be had. But in anything that happens in life, there's good and bad to be had of it. Just like life is both good and bad. There's a quote by Montaigne, the deeper sorrow carves the soul, the more joy you'll be able to obtain. And I think I've been carving out a lot of room to hold some joy. So I'm going to fill up on joy while I'm still alive. I'm glad I didn't end my life. I'm glad nobody else ended my life so that I can be here to enjoy the rest of it. 
I asked Sigrid this, and I know what the obvious answer is, so we can bypass that, but if we were to wave a magic wand and you were free for a week, besides the obvious, what would you want to do in that week with your family? I wouldn't want to go anywhere, do anything. I would just want to be there with them and soak up as much love and give as much love as I possibly could. How much do you think about that? Uh, too much to be happy, maybe. But enough to be really inspired. It's funny how two-dimensional people are made, especially when they've been convicted of a really terrible crime, right? Like you get reduced to a murderer um, and the facts of the case, right? And that's all you are. Yep. And now you have someone in your life who sees you for that and so, so much more. Did you ever think that would ever happen to you? No, she's allowed me to become a multidimensional being and I was just stuck on that flat land. I don't know, she kind of, well, she definitely is the catalyst of the person I am today. There's no way I would have become who I am today without her. I would have never had certain values. I mean, even if I thought that this was a good quality, I would have never done it unless it was motivated to be that for her. I just want to be everything that I can be for her. So all the qualities that I possess today is because she thinks they're attractive or I turn myself into that over time. After researching for this show, we've seen that the success stories when people have gotten out of prison, um, especially if they've met well in prison, that these relationships rarely last, which doesn't necessarily mean that yours wouldn't in this sort of alternate reality where you were able to get out. Is there a part of you that thinks, well, I know what our circumstances will be for the rest of my life. And in a way, you're sort of off the hook in a weird way, like here out in the in the world that's not imprisoned, like people can cheat, people can steal, people can do all sorts of stuff and relationships go sour and you meet a thousand new people and et cetera. Like there's so many ways for relationships to end when when you're not incarcerated. And so I wonder, I just, being incarcerated, your situation will remain static. Is that, in a way, like a feeling of safety, like you won't have to worry about losing her because so much will stay the same? I've heard it a lot, and I think that there's some legitimacy to it, but all those avenues are still open even though I'm incarcerated, even though we're still in a prison relationship. She can go cheat. I mean, people cheat in prison all the time. It's very common if you're in a prison relationship to hear about cheating amongst people in prison relationships. It might not be that obvious to people looking from the outside, but it's a it's a very common occurrence that relationships break up while they're still separated by a fence. But I would love to be challenged that way. I I'm a crazy loyal person. And there's no way that I would ever do anything to hurt her intentionally. I mean, I didn't cheat on any of my girlfriends before I got arrested, so 
I'm definitely not going to start if I get out now. I mean, she kind of redefined love for me. I thought I loved people in the past, and it's just nowhere close to the relationship I have with her. Because I know there are pen pal programs, do you get letters from any other people you don't know? Yeah. I got letters from over 400 different people in a year's time. And I stopped writing to all of them just because I didn't want to talk to anybody else but her. <laughs> I mean, she, she doesn't like that. She wants me to talk to other people because I guess I'm a little... Uh, intense whatever she's my only focus but if i could i would just i would only talk to her uh they're about to close they're about to count so oh okay go. okay is there anything you can uh one last thing i know you talk to her all the time but what message would you like to send sigrid before you go i love you forever and that'll never change well, Alan Wade, thanks for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Audacious is produced by me and Jessica Severin D. Martinez, who is so powerfully drawn to producing shows that are difficult emotionally and logistically. So thank you, Jessica, for all the research and protocols you've figured out in order to connect us with Sigrid and Alan. We also got production help from Khalil Rahman, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford with help from our interns, Elizabeth Van Arnhem and Melody Rivera. You can find so many compelling conversations with people who've had uncommon experiences with life and love on our Audacious Love playlist. You'll hear what happened when people re-met each other via Craigslist's Missed Connections column, and you'll hear wedding stories from people who married spirits and gods. They are all available right now at ctpublic.org slash audaciouslove, wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions to today's show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf, Or you can always send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>